Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 6, Germany Triumphant? Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian drafted into the Soviet Red Army in World War II. Proceeds from sales of those books will go to Ukrainian refugees until all Ukrainians can return home safely. Hello, I'm Scott Burry, author of the Eastern Front Trilogy and 12 other books, and I'm speaking to you today from the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. If you hear any strange noises in the background, that is Daisy, the golden doodle puppy who's uh, snuffling around here. This week is going to be a bit of a shift, less scripted. I'm hoping to be a little bit more relaxed and provide more analysis. So where are we in our chronological look at the Eastern Front of World War II? Last week, I described the progress of German army groups north and south following the Battle of Smolensk. This week, as promised, a look at the area of the operation that I skipped, the middle, where Army Group's center has conquered all of Belarusia, now called Belarus. That was Daisy. So, last week we talked about the beginning of the Siege of Leningrad, because it was almost completely cut off by this point. Uh, and the only way in or out is across Lake Ladoga. The Finns are coming down from the north, the Germans on the west, south, and southeast. There's only one narrow gap. And, of course, at this point, Kiev's been taken. The Germans have crossed the Dnipro and we're advancing on Rostov, Kharkiv, and the Donbass. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. As I said last week, Smolensk was a major turning point in the war in the east. In fact, according to some historians and academics, it was the turning point in the war. Some say it was the point at which, spoiler alert, Germany lost. So let's back up and take a closer look at the Battle of Smolensk. By early July 1941, the Germans had pushed some 500 kilometers, or roughly 300 miles, into the USSR in less than three weeks. They had encircled whole armies near Bialystok and Minsk. See map one on the website beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com for episode six. You've seen this map before, and it'll take some close looking, but you can see the encirclements. The next target in the overall plan was Smolensk. Operation Barbarossa sent the 3rd Panzer Group under General Oberst or Colonel General Hermann Hoff to sweep across Belarus north of Smolensk, and the 2nd Panzer Group under General Oberst hurrying Heinz Guderian to the south. According to the plan, they were going to link up east of Smolensk and then stage the ultimate drive on Moscow. According to Adolf Hitler, Germany would capture the Soviet capital by August 15th and then push east to the Volga River. At that point, the USSR's government would collapse and Nazism's conquest 
would be complete by October 1941, at the very latest. Great plan, right? So let's take a look at the reality. After they liquidated the Bialystok and Minsk pockets, that is, killed or put into prison camps all those hundreds of thousands of Soviet soldiers, the Panzers were slowed down by rain and increased Soviet resistance. Three entire fronts comprising six complete armies then attacked the Panzers. Stavka, the Soviet high command, which meant Stalin himself, Grigory Zhukov, and uh, Semyon Timoshenko, ordered coordinated attacks to stop and repel the invaders. The Germans described this series of counterattacks in July 1941 as the Timoshenko Offensive. But coordination, while ordered, was not what happened. On July 6th, the 20th Soviet Army under Lieutenant General P.A. Korochkin attacked Hoth's third panzer group around Polotsk, Vitebsk, and Orsha. You can see these on the map, uh, map one on the website. You have to take a close look, but they're there. In five days of fighting, the panzer group destroyed the Soviets, who lost 832 out of their 2,000 tanks dedicated to this engagement. So the Soviets, the Red Army, drew, withdrew east across the Dnipropetrovsk River toward Smolensk. This led to the battle for Smolensk itself. The next counterattack by the Soviet 19th Army on July 11th to the 13th, literally starting as they were disembarking from trains, failed to recapture Vitebsk. In the southern portion of Army Group Center Zone, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group had encircled two corps of the Red Army at Moglev in Belarus. Though they held out for two more weeks, they didn't slow hurrying Heinz. By July 10th, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group crossed the Dnipro. In the words of David Glantz in Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's invasion of Russia 1941, the Panzer Group, quote, dismembered the 13th Red Army, end quote. To understand that, by the time that they met, the 13th Red Army had been reduced to only four rifle divisions and had no armor, no tanks. The Soviet 21st Army attacked the German 2nd Army at the Dnipro southwest of Smolensk. Again, they failed to repel or stop the Germans. As Hoth's 3rd Panzer Group kept pushing north of Smolensk and Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group to the south, a huge encirclement started to develop, trapping three armies under Timoshenko. The Soviets realized this. Zhukov ordered the entire Western Front, plus four armies from the Reserve Front, to rescue the three trapped armies under Timoshenko. Zhukov also sent other armies. Remember, by this time, the Soviets were beginning to mobilize more and more armies, moving many from farther east and creating whole new ones. These new armies were ordered to make concentric attacks on the invaders starting on July 21st. So in other words, they were supposed to come from all around and slow down, stop, and then repel the Germans. And yet, they failed. But the Germans were suffering huge losses. By the end of July... The 18th Panzer Division, part of Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group, had only 12 operational tanks left. 
By the end of July, Guderian's 29th motorized division was deep in house-to-house fighting in Smolensk itself. East of the city, the pincers were closing as Hoth's and Guderian's panzers moved to link up. For weeks, thousands of Soviet soldiers streamed through the narrowing gap. This escape of so many units, divisions, regiments of Soviets caused a lot of concern for the German high command. They wanted the gap closed and the encircled Red Armies destroyed. Chiefly, Field Marshal von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, and Haas and Guderian's boss. According to Operation Barbarossa and Germany's defeat in the East by Davis to Hell, quote, By 23rd July, Bock's increasing exasperation at the inability of his two panzer groups to make any headway over such a relatively short distance was becoming more and more conspicuous. Both Hoth and Guderian were in the process of scraping together the necessary force to be used for the operation, that is, closing the circle around the Red Armies east of Smolensk. But as Timoshenko's offensive developed, every available unit was needed to hold the line and repulse the attacks, end quote. Now we can see that some of the divisions among the senior commanders of the Germans were becoming clear. Hurrying Heinz had already ignored orders to liquidate the Minsk pocket and had instead pushed east. Now, after Smolensk, he again defied the OKH and moved farther east to secure the high ground and a strategic bridgehead at Elnia. It's spelled Elnia on the diagram of the Battle of Smolensk labeled Map 2 on the webpage. So take a look. It's there. It's the furthest eastward bulge down sort of a little bit below center of the picture. The Battle of Smolensk officially ended on September 10th, but by early August, the matter had been decided. On July 27th, the Germans completed the encirclement east of the city. There were breakthroughs by the Soviets, but by August 5th, Field Marshal von Bock reported capturing 309,000 prisoners. Total Soviet casualties in the battle totaled some 760,000, 486,171 killed, missing, and captured, and 273,803 wounded. German losses were, of course, lower. The best estimates are around 108,000 to 115,000 men killed or missing. But in proportion to their total strength, this was much worse for the Germans than the Soviets. By the end of July 1941, the total German losses in all three army groups, that is Army Group North moving toward Leningrad, Center moving supposedly toward Moscow, and the South across Ukraine. So the total casualties for that entire force were 213,301. That was that many men killed, wounded, or missing in six weeks. And out of the 213,301 removed from the struggle, the German army in the East received fewer than 50,000 replacements. The Germans were beginning to learn some hard lessons from their campaign in the East. The myth of German military superiority and over 
all superiority because they're the master race. That whole idea was beginning to show some cracks. One of the lessons they were learning the hard way was the effectiveness of the tactics they employed by the Red Army. Not at the overall strategic level, of course. Obviously, having advanced hundreds of kilometers in a month proves something. But at the tactical level, the Red Army was using every advantage it could. Small groups would attack at night or creep through forests until they were close to German units and then pounce with rifles and bayonets. General Gotthard Henrisi, commander of the 43rd Army Corps, wrote this in a letter home on July 20th. Quote, The Russian is very strong and fights desperately, driven by his commissars. Worst of all are the forest battles. Everywhere the Russian suddenly appears and shoots, attacking columns, single transports, dispatches, and so on. The war here is without doubt very bad, and to this must be added the tremendous road difficulties, the enormous spaces, the unending forests, the difficulties with the language, and so on. All past campaigns seem like child's play in comparison with the present war. Our losses are heavy. End quote. I thought this was amusing in a very dark way. Von Bock, commander of Army Group Center, wrote in his diary on July 24th near Smolensk, quote, the Russians are unbelievably stubborn, end quote. The German faith in the superiority of their weapons, too, was eroding. To quote another who was there, a doctor named Gerhard Meyer, in a letter home, quote, This first encounter against the superior enemy, unable to be softened up with artillery, cost us much blood. In four places, there was an enduring and very costly back and forth, whereby the two or threefold Russian superiority, above all in artillery, was very noticeable. The active strength of the division has sunken to less than half, with 80% of the officers lost. End quote. From Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East, again by David Sahel, quote, Yet the real Soviet advantage lay not in specialized weaponry, but in the proportionate number of guns they could assemble and supply with ammunition. This is not to say that there were not considerable imperfections in the Soviet employment and handling of artillery early in the war. But the Germans, by comparison, were frequently outgunned and even then had great trouble bringing up sufficient stockpiles of shells." End quote. The difference between Soviet and German weaponry was indicative of the whole war. My father-in-law, Maurice Burry, the subject of the Eastern Front Trilogy, served in the Red Army in 1941. He told me that he could tell the difference between Soviet and German machine guns by their sound. While the Soviet gun went pop, 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 the Germans sounded more like a continuous lethal bzz, bzz. He said, because they were spitting lead that much faster. Here's the thing, though. The German weapon was more precise, faster, more efficient, at a higher level of engineering, more expensive, which meant it had to be taken care of. It didn't respond well to mud. It had to be cleaned frequently. 
and there was a lot of mud in Belarusia in the summer of 1941. On the other hand, the Soviet weapon was cruder, rougher, less efficient, but it was also simpler and could be made much more cheaply, and it could take a lot more abuse. And that meant the Soviets could manufacture a lot more and put them in soldiers' hands a lot quicker. And in a war, ultimately, numbers matter. The Germans were also learning some expensive lessons about Soviet armor. At the outbreak of the invasion, most of the Soviet tanks in the field were obsolete. But they were bringing two new models to the front, the KD-1 and especially the T-34, which was described by many as the best tank of the war. They really started to change the German view of their own invincibility. Both these Soviet tanks had thick steel armor. The T-34's front armor was 60 millimeters thick, or 2.4 inches. The KV-1, the heavy tank, had armor that was 110 millimeters, or 4.3 inches thick in front. That, and the fact that the armor was sloped, made them impenetrable by almost all German weapons, except for the heavy 8.8 centimeter flak or anti-aircraft gun. In comparison, the Germans' panzers, the Mark III and Mark IV, had much, much thinner armor. The Mark III's uh, had uh, an armor that was, at the very thickest point, 30 millimeters thick, half the thickness of the T-34. The Panzer IV had somewhat thicker armor from 20 millimeters in the rear to 80 millimeters in the front. They were from an earlier generation of tanks than the newest Soviet competitors, and they were vulnerable to Soviet anti-tank guns. So to go back to the example of my father-in-law, Maurice, he commanded a small anti-tank unit in 1941 and described his experiences, which I captured in the novel Army of Worn Souls. The unit was outfitted with three PTRD-41 anti-tank rifles. This was an odd-looking weapon. It looked like a large hunting rifle with a long, almost delicate barrel and a pistol-like hand grip and trigger. A V-shaped stand held the far end of the barrel off the ground. Its ammunition appeared too small to have any effect on a tank, but it was designed to penetrate steel plate before exploding. Operating the PTRD-41 required two men. One private loaded the ammunition into the breech, and a corporal aimed and fired the gun at the lieutenant's command. Its length, weight, and lack of telescopic sights made it difficult to aim. Maurice knew every shot produced a huge muzzle blast and kipped up enough dirt to give away its position to the enemy. He saw his main goal, as commander of this anti-tank unit, to keep the men alive. The damn weapons make that a lot harder, he thought. Now, skipping ahead a couple of chapters to the actual use of the weapon. Maurice's fingers tingled as the rising sun revealed columns of armored vehicles and marching men, officers' staff cars and motorized cannons. The lines stretched for miles. The German army moved in unison, fast, alert, and fearless like a predator. Two panzers ventured onto a small wooden bridge. 
They, re they weren't even phased when the bridge collapsed under their weight. The water didn't reach over the tops of their treads. The drivers just downshifted and continued on. An officer shouted to Maurice's right, and anti-tank guns fired. Shells burst on the lead panzer and flames erupted around the turret, but didn't damage the tank. Its machine gun fired and then its cannon barked. Maurice saw red soldiers' bodies fling up out of destroyed trenches. Fire, he yelled. Andre and Oris pulled their triggers and the kickback of the rifles geysered dirt into the air. Damn, Maurice thought. If that doesn't draw the Germans' attention, nothing will. The shells went wide. Reload. The panzers swept past them, crushing wounded men under their treads. Andre and Nikolai swung their gun around. Aim at its back, Maurice said. Fire! The gun whooshed and the shell hit the panzer's fuel tank, oddly exposed on the rear deck behind the turret. The tank's rear end lifted high and Maurice thought it would flip over. Shards of metal flew in every direction and the tank's hull split and burned. The explosion rang in Maurice's ears for minutes. July 1941 was also the debut of an iconic Soviet weapon, the BM-13 multiple rocket launcher, called Katyusha, or Stalin's organs, because they kind of look like pipe organs. I've, I've posted a picture on the website. A Katyusha, it's a Russian girl's name, consisted of a rack of parallel rails from which rockets could be launched. The rack itself sat on a frame that could be raised to a firing position, and that in turn was placed on the bed of a truck. Each such equipped truck had from 14 to 48 rails, or launchers, and while they were less accurate than conventional artillery, they delivered a mass of ordnance over a long range. In under 10 seconds, a battery of four BM-13s, or Katyushas, could send over four tons of high explosive, that's equivalent to 72 conventional cannons, mortars, or howitzers. And then, immediately after firing, the crew could bug out, move the truck to a new position, and that made it almost impossible to fire back effectively. The Ukrainians today are very effectively utilizing the same principle, with today's equivalent of the Katyusha, the HIMARS, sent from the United States. But back to 1941. In Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East, author David Stahel describes the impact of the Katyushas on the Germans. Quote, One soldier who had fought in Poland, France, and later Italy described his first experience of the Katyusha battery as, quote, the most terrible and shocking thing I have ever encountered. End quote. Observing the first usage of the new weapon at Rudnia near Smolensk, Marshal Andrei Yeremenko recalled, on the afternoon of the 15th of July, the earth shook with the unusual explosion of jet mines. Like red-tailed comets, the mines were hurled into the air. The effect of the simultaneous explosions of dozens of these mines was terrific. The Germans fled in panic, and even our own troops, who for reasons of security had not been warned that this new weapon would be used, rushed back from the front line. End quote. So, what all these lessons added up to was slower progress for the Germans. By late July, even with the encirclement complete at Smolensk, or almost complete, the German forces were still 400 kilometers or 250 miles west of Moscow, which was the goal. There was no way they could reach the capital 
by their original projected date of August 15th. Also at this point, weaknesses were beginning to show. German supply lines stretched more than 400 kilometers at Smolensk. It was a long way to bring ammunition. And remember how hurrying Heinz decided to push even past Smolensk before the city was captured to a strategic high point and bridgehead at Yelnia or Elnia. He found himself in a salient where his lines pushed far ahead, in effect facing enemies on three sides. He tried to thrust north from there on July 23rd to link up with Hoth, but that was impossible. He later wrote, quote, The Russian attacks went on with undiminished violence. All attempts to advance toward Dorogobuzh were a complete failure, end quote. Take a look at the uh, diagram on the website again for the picture of uh, Smolensk and Guderian's position. So Guderian had to retreat. But that wasn't simple. A survivor named Hyde Ruhl later wrote, quote, The gunners, working like fury, finally beat off the first Russian tank attacks, but these were then renewed in greater strength. We were smothered in a drum fire such as we had never before experienced. Because of the severe losses which it had sustained, the motorcycle battalion had to be taken out of the line and was replaced by an East Prussian engineer battalion. With the help of that formation, we, stum- we stemmed the Russian advance, albeit only temporarily, for soon ammunition for the guns began to run out, and we were only allowed to fire against certain specified targets. End quote. So at the end of July, Hitler made a decision that some historians point to as the most important in the war in the East. So after ordering Panzer Groups 2 and 3 to pause, repair, recuperate, and refresh, after Smolensk for a couple of weeks, Fuhrer Directive 33 changed the strategy. Hitler apparently thought Army Group Center had essentially a one already, so its focus would shift to mopping up and eliminating the remaining Red Army in the Central Front, including the encirclement east of Smolensk. The next phase would be to, quote, prevent any further sizable enemy forces from withdrawing into the depths of Russia and to wipe them out. End quote. So he ordered units of Hoth's Panzer Group III north to aid in the attack on Leningrad, and Guderian's Panzer Group South to help in the assault on Kiev, and then move farther east to seize the rest of Ukraine. I don't know about you. I find whenever I change a plan midway through, I just make it worse. While the goals of this change in uh, Fuhrer Directive 33 may have made a kind of sense. For example, the the idea was to completely isolate Leningrad and encircle and destroy the southwestern front in Ukraine. It changed severely weakened the possibility of an attack on Moscow. David Stahel describes this decision as, quote, a remarkable departure from reality reflecting both Hitler's exorbitant self-assurance and the excessive bias and information flowing through the high command, end quote. Brautisch, Halder, Guderian, Hoth, Jodl, nearly all the senior German officers opposed the idea. Guderian and Halder even left the front to fly to meet Hitler and dissuade him from the strategy. But they could not change his mind. In fact, he added to his new plans 
with Directive 33A in a few days, ordering the 1st and 2nd Armoured Groups along with infantry and mounted divisions to go south into Ukraine, occupy Kharkiv, and then thrust the Don River and south toward the Caucasus. The infantry would then occupy Ukraine, Crimea, and central Russia up to the Don River. Hitler said that the infantry divisions of Army Group Center were strong enough to finish mopping up on their own and then capture Moscow. And Panzer Group 3 would fall under the command of Army Group North and secure its right flank and surround the enemy in the Leningrad area. The general staff knew this was a recipe for disaster. Over and over, they tried to tell Hitler that it made no sense. They had to capture Moscow before winter. And with the losses they had suffered already, they needed to concentrate their full strength on one objective. They knew, too, that the operation would only get more difficult as supply lines became more and more stretched and the front became wider. Just look at any map of Europe, and you can see that if you start at the 1941 border between Russia and the USSR, and the front that goes from the Baltic to the Black Sea, that front gets wider the further east you go, which means that the German forces pushing forward got stretched ever thinner, even as their numbers were eroding under relentless Soviet counterattacks. By the end of July, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group had lost over 15,000 men, dead, wounded, and missing. Hoth's Panzer Group III, over 10,000. Guderian's quartermaster general wrote in his journal on July 22nd that the ammunition situation at the front was critical. Oil was also running out. Panzers and other vehicles needed to have their motors replaced. The arrival of 30 new Panzer Mark III's and IVs to the 18th Panzer Division, that's the division in Guderian's group that had been reduced to 18 operational tanks by the time they reached Smolensk, this reinforcement only brought them up to 20% of full strength. Other divisions were operating at less than half strength too. Could Germany win this war? In summer 1941, from a view high enough, that looked, it looked like Germany was winning. It held sway over almost all of Europe, from the Mediterranean to the Barents Seas, from the Atlantic shores to the Black Sea and the Dnieper River. But if you come down to ground level, the picture gets very different. A couple of authors offer these two competing analyses, and I'll let you decide which is more credible. So in Why the Allies Won, published in 1995, Richard Overy writes, quote, The wide, even grasslands of the Soviet Union showed German armored forces at their most deadly in the summer of 1941. Against overwhelming odds, some 3,648 tanks against an estimated 15,000 Soviet tanks, the Panzer armies cut swathe after swathe through the Soviet defenses virtually destroyed the Soviet tank and air arms, and brought the Soviet Union almost to the point of collapse, end quote. Now, two of the sources I've uh, used quite extensively in this podcast uh, were written quite some time after that. Uh, David Glantz's latest version of Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's Invasion of Russia in 1941, was first published in 2001, and the edition I'm using was uh, published in 2011. And David Stahel's Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East was published in 2009. So those intervening years 
gave scholars, academics, and historians a lot more time to study some records, records that had been suppressed or hidden from the West by the Soviet Union until the Soviet Union's collapse in, the, in 1990. And what those records allow was a lot, well, it painted a pic, very different picture than the conventional view in the West, which was that the Soviet Union was helpless, they fought hard, but suffered great, great many millions of deaths and, and captured prisoners. And the only thing that stopped Germany was winter. So take a look at, uh, at David Stahill again, kind of responding to the idea uh, presented by Richard Overy. Of the 15,000 Soviet tanks facing 3,000 German tanks, the overwhelming majority, says Sahel, were antiquated models in varying states of disrepair and manned by barely trained crews. Quote, while the shattering defeats suffered by the Red Army remained categorical, they were only achieved at a cost so great to the Wehrmacht as to quickly preclude any hope of finding victory in 1941, and at no time succeeded in eliminating major Soviet resistance. End quote. Stahl also quotes another author, Robert Cetino, who published Death of the Wehrmacht in 2007. Cetino writing about July 1941, after Germany's, quote, dizzying successes up to Smolensk, quote, It was at this very moment, with Soviet Russia seemingly on the ropes and the Red Army having apparently dissolved, that Barbarossa began to fall apart. Stahl goes on to cite Karl Gottfried von Clausewitz, whose work on war, written in the 19th century and based on his analysis of the wars of Napoleon and Frederick the Great, continues to be influential. It was Clausewitz's writings that gave us ideas like real politic and the fog of war. He's also one, the one who stated, war is the continuation of policy with other means. Anyway, the point that Stahl makes is Clausewitz's hypothesis about the culminating point. This is a point in a war that comes when the attacker's force has been worn down to the point where the defender is stronger. Stahel and others argue that this point was reached in Operation Barbarossa soon after the Battle of Smolensk. So as I said before, the German forces were strongest on June 22, 1941. From this point, they diminished steadily. Meanwhile, the Soviets kept getting stronger, bringing up more and more reserves, and by July, more than a dozen whole new armies. According to Stahel, quote, German operations in the East had failed by the middle of August 1941, end quote. So I think this is a good point to sum up what we've learned in this episode. We're approaching late summer, maybe early fall 1941. In the north, the Germans have almost completely surrounded Leningrad. Army Group Center, now virtually void of armor, sits east of Smolensk, on the road to Moscow, but still 300 miles away from it. In the south, after finally taking Kiev on September 15th and pushing into the Crimean Peninsula, past the Dnipro River and toward the Don, it's ready to seize the oil-producing and industrial lands of the Caucasus and the Donbass. But that's enough for today. Next episode, we'll take a closer look at those 
initiatives in the North and the South, including some reports from people who were there. A couple of things to tell you before I sign off. After this point, Beyond Barbarossa will move to a two-week schedule. This will give me more time for more detailed research and better production. In other words, Beyond Barbarossa will return on August 10th. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Turn to the maps on the webpage to help you follow along and see where different places are. Again, if I've made any errors, please contact me and tell me about them. You can reach me by email at contact at writtenword.ca or through the webpage beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. We also have a Facebook page and you can find me, Scott Burry, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Scott the Writer. All the links are in the show notes and on the webpage. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following and leaving a five-star rating on your preferred podcasting app. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever you listen on. Reviews really help discoverability. You can also help support the show on Patreon. You'll find the links in the show notes and on the webpage too. Music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next episode, give to good causes, support Ukraine, and keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.